Cade Lafalta to Danny Houlihan's Irish Experience. Welcome all to our special show today, which commemorates the anniversary of the first East to West voice speech transmission by Marconi radio station YXQ from a site on Santal Road, Ballybun in North Kerry, Ireland, to a receiving station at Lewisburg, Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, Canada, on the 19th of March, 1919, by Marconi wireless engineer, WT Ditcham. This special programme is not just being podcasted, but it is being streamed out of the Ballybunham YXQ internet radio talk show, home to Danny Houlihan's Irish experience. After a hundred years of technological advances, a wireless radio station, which once could cost over £250,000 sterling to build, can now be put together for only a few thousand pounds and can stream around the world, which has been proven as I speak this morning. With this in mind, we give respect to the 110 workforce who are now at rest, both in Ballybunion and in Canada. Their descendants can be very, very proud of their achievements for the advancement of mankind. Now, to start this special show off, a piece of music I recorded on the pipes many years ago. And this is for all our people in Ireland and out there in Canada and around the world. This piece runs my historical podcasts. It's the one and only She Moved Through the Fair. She moved to the fair. I hope you enjoy that tune. Now it is on to the main part of our show this morning and the history of our famous radio station, YXQ. First east-to-west voice speech transmission from Santal Road, Ballybunion, North Kerry, Ireland to Lewisburg, Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, Canada and its background history and the history of the station prior to the transmission to Newcastle, New Brunswick in Canada. In 1912, construction of a massive transatlantic station 
was well underway in Ballybunnan, County Kerry, Ireland. The company responsible for the work was Universal Radio Syndicate, a London-based company with a leader who was passionate for technology. Universal Radio Syndicate had purchased a patent of the Poulsen Arc Transmitter, pioneered by Vladimir Poulsen, a Danish inventor. In Ballybunion, on the European side, a 72-acre site was purchased from the then-local landlord George Hewson of Innesmore. The site was turned into a massive radio installation. Though the ground was uneven, and according to engineers of the time, its 112 workforce of craftsmen and builders and a few engineers succeeded in transforming a bare warren into a transatlantic station. The aerial combination was of umbrella formation of seven wooden masts which were constructed on site, six 300 foot in height and the central being 500 foot. These masts were anchored to concrete bases with miles of steel wires and guy ropes. The 500 foot mast had a depth dug to facilitate 18 tonnes of concrete. The 300 foot mast had a depth dug for 15 tonnes of concrete. All gravel, stones, lime and mortar were taken from the Ballybunham foreshore. Once the deep 40 to 50 foot bases were finished, the area was levelled off and secured by local groundsmen. Humphrey Steel Erectors of London and Campbell Shaw Cradle Company worked on the erection of the powerhouse and the giant masts. The central mast was constructed of tubular steel with crossbeams of heavy steel bracings. The other towers were of a lattice timber design. We can observe this from the pictures of the time which are unique. All tubular steel poles were laid out on the ground in the following directions. The widest mast poles, 500 foot mast, lay in a north-south direction in order of thickness. The cross-beam bracings, the steel tower, lay in a westerly direction, facing the Atlantic. These poles connected to the main tubular mast by a treaded bolt. 100 workers worked on these buildings, which included a station house, which was a wooden construction. The other ancillary buildings were constructed of ship-lapped or tongued-and-groove construction, consisting of a mess, storage and woodwork facilities. The powerhouse, when finished, looked like a modern power station. It must have seemed alien to those who worked there at that time. The floor was clean concrete, well laid out, with the two massive engines taking centre stage, half underground. To the rear of the alternators, right of the door, was a massive switchboard to operate the power to the station house and activate the giant marine engines with dials and cut-off switches. Modern in those days, still from the pictures, the wow factor can draw your attention to this day. Two large marine engines that were to power the station were brought to Ballybunion by the Lartigue monorail to the Ballybunion station house. Prior to the transportation of the engines, the road from Durabog out was steel-plated to accommodate the heavy weight of the engines. All had to be disassembled before transit nine miles to Ballybunion. It has been stated that the assistance of a traction engine was also used in this process. Arriving at the Ballybunion station house, the radio station engines were offloaded by the engineers and pulled by horse and dray to the station site 1,000 yards away. This included the heavy steel wire ropes and boxes of insulators for the station, along with the famous arc transmitter.
At the rear end of the station house, the arcs were installed, with fittings connected to the roof and from there to all the masts and anemeters. In another room, several mosques were connected, ready for transatlantic communications with its sister station at Newcastle, New Brunswick, Canada. After months of long hard work, the station was nearing completion. The 500-foot steel mast had just been finished. However, just as the engineers had descended from the crow's nest 500 feet above, at 8 in the evening, a storm came and caught the mast, causing the anchor steel to crack. Thus it fell in a southerly direction, resulting in thousands of pounds of damage to the tower and nearly put to an end the lives of a number of groundsmen who had taken shelter in a wooden building, which was in the direct path of the falling tower. As the tower swayed in the wind, the massive steel ropes started to warp and strain. The porcelain insulators took the brunt of the force and one by one started to explode like bombs going off. As the anchor steel gave way, the sound of the exploding insulators was heard for miles around. The wreckage of the massive 500-foot mast with its area lay buried in the sandy soil of Central Road. Quickly the workers and riggers made their way to the fallen tower to see the damage. The crow's nest was buried up to seven feet in the ground. Pulleys, ropes were buried in the soil and heavy steel wires mingled with broken insulators were strewn everywhere. The groundsmen rapidly stripped the giant tower and cleared the area back to the 500-foot mass base. The steel tubular tower was easy to take apart and according to correspondence dated the 8th day of July 1914, Chief Engineer Cyril F. Elwell was very happy of the work done to rebuild the tower using some of the original steel by his engineer Archie M. Stevens. Quote, I note the way you are fixing up the broken anchor bar and it certainly should hold. I hope the rest of the tower can go up at the same rate. You will then have it done and start the real problem of getting communications across the Atlantic, unquote. In 1914, the station was in operation and was still being updated by its engineers and groundsmen on the fall of 1914 and 1915. Across the Atlantic, at its sister station in Newcastle, New Brunswick, Canada, a similar design layout was being completed. This station house was a fine cut stone building in comparison to Ballybunnan's army-style timber design. All tests were now at full to bridge the Atlantic. With the 100 kilowatt and 200 kilowatt arc transmitters, which were sitting on their platforms facing in a southerly direction, all were being tested both day and night, and the sound of the massive marine engines at the powerhouse was at full throttle, at times scared the locals who described it as eerie into the Ballybunna nights. The station house Morse keys rattled to the sound of Morse code messages as the European station of Ballybunnan transmitted its pioneering signals across the Atlantic to its sister station at Newcastle, New Brunswick, and from New Brunswick back to Ballybunnan. A cipher machine was located in another room for messages, inbound from Newcastle, New Brunswick in Canada. All tests proved that the station was powerful and capable to handle transatlantic messages. In fact, it interfered with Marconi stations. Marconi was keeping a watchful eye on his competitor and Ballybunion. Universal Radio Syndicate were on target to succeed. But due to the turmoil in Europe, which erupted into World War I, the station was taken over by the Royal Navy, who used it to monitor submarine messages and marine traffic during the war period. In fact, it has been stated that the station in Ballybunion 
justified its existence by saving part of the British fleet, thus earned its validation. In Ballybunnan during World War I, uniformed naval officers mingled with the locals and contributed to the economy of the area, a factor which has been forgotten locally. Locals worked daily on the station with the area on high alert. A massive dike or trench was constructed which ran parallel to the sand dunes, so access to the station was by means of a small drawbridge under the watchful eye of a British naval officer armed with a machine gun. During this period in the history of the transatlantic station, a company of the Lynchner Regiment was, according to local sources, based at the station. Their accommodation consisted of two small billets. These billets were in existence until recently near the town of Ballybunnan, having been moved after the closure of the station. On their time off, the officers and engineers played cricket under the 500-foot mast on Saturdays, while the technical crews walked away inside the power plant in preparation for daily monitoring of the Atlantic. During the winter months of 1914, 15 and 16, from the local records, bottles of whisky and stout were brought to the station house daily, accompanied with bags of coal. Obviously, the long winters were having its impact on the staff. It should be noted that all the steeplejacks prior to climbing the mast got a mug of whisky before going up and coming down the mast, according to an ancestor of Michael Daly's, who has related this to me. During the war, Ballybunnan Station was under the control of the Admiralty from a room known as 400B in London. There, messages from Ballybunnan were examined and passed on to the military. Enter Marconi. During this period, with the ending of the war not in sight, the newspapers carried the story that the Universal Radio Syndicate would go into voluntary liquidation, which the company did later in 1915. The Marconi Company purchased both stations well below the cost it took to build it. In Newcastle, New Brunswick in Canada, the company made no delay in closing the station, boarding up all the buildings, leaving the arcs and other equipment behind to fall into ruin. In years to follow, the land was sold off, thus a piece of Newcastle, New Brunswick history was gone forever, and communications with its sister station in Ballybunnan was now lost. Ballybunnandor received a lifeline. With the arrival of Marconi's chief engineers, Captain Henry Joseph Round and W.T. Ditcham, along with Willem Henry Venn. An increase in activity surrounded the station in Ballybunnan at that time. With Marconi in the area and his engineers planning a major communications advancement. Local groundsmen were now under Marconi and the Marconi Company, and his top technical team who were coordinating the installation of a pioneering valve transmitter under the supervision of Captain Henry Joseph Round. Two Bedfordy engines were brought from the stall using horses and a traction engine. Once again, these engines had to be brought to and connected to the powerhouse in Ballybunnan. It should be noted that the two massive marine engines were still there in position. Local history relates that W.T. Ditcham was at the station house with a microphone in his hand and issued orders for local man Michael Daly, steeplejack, to climb the 500-foot mast and erect an aerial on it. Michael Daly climbed the 500-foot mast above Ballybunnan and attached the aerial to the mast. Descending the mast, later Michael informed Ditcham that the aerial had been connected. Ditcham then spoke into the microphone. The words were, hello, 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 were uttered. 
The validation for this is from Michael Daly's boards himself on Irish television. Weeks went on as the engineers prepared YXU station for transatlantic communications to Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, Canada. Before the transmission was carried out, several signals were sent across the British Channel to London and Chelmsford. On the 19th of March, 1919, from 10 in the morning, Marconi engineer W.T. Ditcham commenced voice speech transmission tests to Lewisburg, Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, Canada. The wireless station also commences continuous Morse messages from Ballybunion on that day to Canada. Hello Canada, Hello Canada is reportedly were the words that were spoken. It should be noted that the call sign YXQ would have been used in this historic communication. The day wore on until the afternoon when a reply was received. Communications had been made to Canada and received clearly by Mr Pican, a Canadian engineer. The first east-to-west voice speech transmission was achieved by Marconi Company and his engineers from Ballybunion, North Kerry, Ireland. The technical specifications of the station from the Marconi Historical Archive are still available. Quote, The purpose of the tests were to prove that with a combination of the oscillating valve transmitter and the modern type Marconi receiver, only quite a small amount of power is required to transmit either telegraphic or telephonic messages across the Atlantic and also to obtain some data what power would be required for the continuous commercial operation over such a range. Both objects were successfully obtained. Unquote. The telephony transmitter was installed by Henry Joseph Round in Ballybunion and the receiver, a Type 55, was installed at Lewisburg, Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, Canada at a distance of 1,800 miles. The mast height in Ballybunion was 500 feet of umbrella formation. Two driven motors were the prime movers which drove the generator, applying from the historical notes of the time 2.5 kilowatts at 12,000 volts to the oscillating valves. For speech, a third valve was used with a step-up transformer. 16 amperes of power to the aerial was registered at a wavelength of 3800 metres, provided that there was no interference from SPAC stations. R-34 Airship, July 1919, East to West Atlantic Passage. Ballybun YSQ had another claim to its radio history, making communications with the Royal Air Force R-34 Airship as it made its way east to west from Clyde in Scotland to America. The R-34 had the length of two football fields, built in Clyde and after her construction was used by the Air Ministry for experiments. The purpose of the experiment was not from the commercial side of air travel, but to understand the scientific reasons of dealing with high technical, minute detailed records relating to gas, ballast, petrol, temperature, atmosphere and humidity. The R-34 made contact with the Marconi radio station YXQ in Ballybunion on its journey at a distance of 1,600 miles into the Atlantic, before landing in America. I will return again to R-34 in the future to explore its pioneering voyage and the connections with the Ballybunion station. Due to the advancement of valve technology and the conditions in Ireland during the Irish Civil War, the station was occupied by Republican forces who removed vital equipment. The Marconi Company in due course advertised in the national newspapers of the time that the two stations, both Clifton and Ballybunion, 
will be put up for sale, thus ending the long history of both wireless stations. The land was purchased by the then Ballyvonan Golf Club, who were planning to extend the course into the area where the radio station was sited. However, these plans were never carried out, thus the land was sold on. The Irish College constructed the Irish College on the site of the original station house, which was burned to the ground during the 1960s. The masts were left fall and the timber sold off in lots, as well as the massive steel wires and insulators, which were bought by locals and used as hot water bottles when heated. Only a small collection remains today with the local historian Ballybunion, Danny Houlihan. Each year, Radio Kerry Amateurs broadcast from the original site in Ballybunion. One of their great historians, the late great John G. O'Carroll of Main Street Ballybunion, was one of the radio operators who organised the event and had a commemorative stone erected on the entrance to Marconi Avenue, a suitable commemoration to the event. To quote a friend who many years ago encouraged me to continue researching into the famous radio station in Ballybunion, physics professor Michel van Dyck, UCC, quote, In our times when technology is a new idol, let us remember that technology cannot be successful without fundamental science. Wireless is a typical example where fundamental science was at the origin of the most amazing technology. I hope you enjoyed our journey back to Ballybunnan and its famous YXQ station. Its people that were the pioneers and the faces of transatlantic communications from Ballybunnan to Newcastle, New Brunswick and Lewisburg, Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, Canada. This is truly a unique history and a past that makes up Danny Houlihan's Irish experience.